0: Follow along with me in the bulletin as we read Nehemiah, the second chapter. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart." Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight— that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I, was, when I had given him a time, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let, the letters, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters, Now, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Oronite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, And so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they, and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Oronite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. And said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The word of the Lord.
1: As we continue in our Ezra Nehemiah sermon series series, Um, after taking a two-week break. And I thank you, Paul and Matt, um, for giving uh, your pastor a breather and uh, ministering to your brothers and sisters in the Lord here at Christ Central. Um, Thank you. Needed that two weeks off. But now we are back at it here in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. And just as a refresher for you, Israel was exiled for almost 70 years, stolen away from their homeland by world powers who were set on uprooting them, keeping them in check by making their country and heritage and faith in God unstable. But now God has allowed them to return home, to rebuild their lives, to rebuild the the holy kind of capital city of Jerusalem. And like many of our own slummed out, neglected ghettos, Where the church, you know, the temple, if you will, in the middle of it it looks great. But the streets and the homes and the neighborhood itself, the, the infrastructure, the potential for crime. And in this case, the walls around the city of Jerusalem remain undone, run down and Overlooked. And yes, this is another situation where the man has kept them down, where the king ordered the stopping of government help and the right zoning necessary to rebuild their walls due to political pressures. Needless to say, this contrast of this great new temple and bad neighborhood makes God look like he's not a loving God but a haughty, upper-class, master in a bakehouse, house, while those people live like orphans and slaves, God. And verse 17 says they and their God were in derision. Or another way of describing it, utter shame of of, of misery, of, of, of mockery in the eyes of the world. So hearing that this was the case, Nehemiah, a cupbearer, a, a top servant in the king's court, decides he must do something about it. Now, it is easy to make this book of Nehemiah, as has been done in the past, only about rebuilding the city, the inner city work, bobos in action. That's young urban evangelicals who move in and towards the city to change it for Jesus. Good stuff, yeah. But this book is about more than that. It is about God using his people to transform all that sits in his shadow, the shadow of his domain. Like the temple sat on a high hill above the everyday lives of God's people, our faith, our relationship with God sits above all we do and all we are in our everyday lives. Which means that if anything... Is in darkness, in sin, chaos, in disrepair, not reflective of the light of God's glory and goodness. We are called as his people to seek its redemption and betterment for his glory. We are called to enter the darkness. And bring it towards and into the light, whether it's relationships or or marriages or, or work world or finances or politics or recreation. And yes, the city and society, all things that sit in sin, unjustified despair and disrepair are and should be our everyday life mission field. To be willing, like Nehemiah, to enter the darkness of this world. And walk towards the light. What really gets me when I first when I, when I read this passage in, in chapter two of Nehemiah is, is just how bent Nehemiah is on entering into the mess and and, and, and injustices and and the not right and sin damage of his world. He, He sets himself up and schemes and acts with all the wisdom he can, using all the means and all the stuff and relationship he has to free himself. Why? To have no excuses and roadblocks to get this. To enter chaos to enter confusion, to enter a problem area, to enter the darkness and uncertainty of the mess that his people are involved in and trapped in in Israel. Look with me at verse 1 through 8 once again. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lives in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest that he may give me the timber to make beans for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, I want you to know something. It was imperative that servants as high up and close to the king as Nehemiah that they kept a good face, right? They were not allowed to, to show sadness or disdain. This isn't what we have going in our country where you can put bumper stickers against the president, right? You, you can't write things on Facebook and, and, you know, impeach Obama and I hate him and let's get him out and all this kind of stuff. You weren't allowed to be down in the mouth or down in the face about anything dealing with the king. You weren't allowed to take away attention from the king or or bring down his party or public events. It was deadly. In other words, you could be hung or beheaded for making yourself the center of attention. But Nehemiah risked his high ranking his money, his very job, right, his very life, right, to get the king's intention. And he wasn't just stupid about it. He knew that it was a kind of event, probably a private event based on the details there, most likely with the queen there and all, meaning the king didn't want to act a fool in front of the queen, that it was the best time, right? It was the most strategic time to be sad about something that the king decided to do. And, and, and Nehemiah wanted him to reverse, I mean, this guy, Nehemiah, not only has guts, but again, uses the position he has, all the act Thing he can with the sad face and all, right? All the planning he has to put it all on a missional risk that could cost him every one of his security areas, his reputation, his good government job, right? To get an okay, get this now, to get an okay to create a way, not so he can enter into a better place, so he can enter in and be a servant in the chaos and uncertainty and sin darkness that was 1,000 miles away from him. And then when he does go to Jerusalem, the Bible tells us that he beats up with opposition to his coming, and this happens. Look with me at verse 11. So when I went to Jerusalem, was there three days. And was there three days, excuse me. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put to my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one I rode on. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, officials, and the rest who were with who were to do the work. Let me tell you what's happening. This dude is going into the night so that he can see. Now, they didn't have those high-powered flashlights, right? He probably had a lantern, okay? (laughs) He is going into the night or a candle so that he will see the mess and strategize how to get into it the right way. All right, now hear me now. He is not examining the walls secretly, so that if he discovers that it's too hard or risky, he can skip out before anyone knows he was there. I don't want to... I don't know about you, but it is my natural son of Adam, born and bred, red-blooded American, slightly privileged, and yes, evangelical tendency, to what? What? Use all the means of my appointment, all my abilities and skills, all the books I've read about difficult people and counseling and what people really like, all the gift of gab education position, my quiet and secretly well read and trained, savvy, informed understanding of all the problems to avoid sin broken people and situations. To not, enter into, to not enter into, but learn how to manage chaos and difficult people. To avoid have to go into the darkness. To avoid certain conversations with certain people with uncertain results. To avoid getting caught out there. To avoid conflict and rejection and death. I do all I can to stop my family and me from suffering. Yet Entering the darkness of other people's lives, as we see here, means actually preparing and planning and plotting and learning and knowing, seeing and risking all you have to do what? To be be a player and get played by God to go into the darkness and hardship of the lives and world of people close and far away from you. The Bible tells us that once Nehemiah gets to go ahead, he gets the king's caravan and paperwork to make sure. Get this, not to make sure it's safe necessarily, not to make sure, you know, if things get rough, I got a caravan back home. You know, I got to have the police ex- escort back to, back to Babylon. That's where i like to go, right? No, he gets all this stuff in order. It's so opposite our American thinking. We get our stuff in order so that we can make sure we have choices, right? To get up and leave. He gets his paperwork and stuff in order to make sure he, when he gets there that he can be there and actually follow through to do what God has called him to do. And then the Bible tells us that when he gets here, he meets with opposition from people who don't want him to be there. And he was looking around at night. The Bible tells us that he literally meets a roadblock. Verse fifteen, verse fourteen tells us that. Okay, so you can imagine him walking around a city, and, and the gates are in ruin, right? And, 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 and there, there are bricks on the ground. There, there's mess on the ground. There's, there's there's burned up wood on the ground. And the Bible tells us that his mule, it's so bad at a certain part of the gate that his mule can't pass through. A roadblock, a wall, not in the right place, a wall in the wrong place, right? Where he can't even get through. Brother should have gone back home if your donkey can't get through, right? I mean, you ain't even started yet. You know, the hard work hasn't even started yet. There's a roadblock, man. A mule can't get through. Turn around. Don't keep inspecting the gates. That should be enough right there. You don't need to see anymore, Nehemiah. There's a roadblock. You got to get off your horse and walk around. Come on, go back home. No, the Bible says he gets up the next morning and leaves a rally to start the work. I bring attention to this because all we all have great ideas. And we're pretty good knowledge. we in pretty good knowledge when you go to the premarital counseling about what it means to be married. When we join a church, an eclectic church in the city, like Christ Central. Again, this kind of applies to today, right? When we join and take our vow in a church, we're moving to a certain world-changing job. Some of you teachers are in these CMS schools and they ain't the greatest, right? And, and, or you're in a neighborhood. Heck, when you give your life to Jesus, right? We all have these great plans. And we're kind of, you know, inspecting life. And unfortunately... Once you are like too far in to back up, and when the smooth ride makes you have to get down a bit, when we see what is truly at hand, what God is thrusting us towards, and what it will cost us in those hard places and people and issues for us to deal with, we start to feel overwhelmed. I do. We begin to assess our situations and relationships that we are called to with an eye for no longer, hey, I'm looking at the wall so I can figure out how to fix it. We now look at our relationships and situations for an eye of how to get over or get out of it. When we hit a roadblock, the first thing I do is, what did we do wrong? We must be in the wrong place. It's too hard there's a roadblock. I, you know, I should not have hung out with this person. I should have asked them how they're doing. I should not have had that discussion. You know, what's your wife? How are we doing? I shouldn't have asked that. Because as soon as I get the roadblock, the wall, the first thing we say is everything we see tells us we shouldn't be here. We want to make sure now that it won't cost us too much. We're looking to preserve ourselves, to make sure we won't get the blame or responsibility in this marriage, to make sure we get the connection and friendships we want out of the church. the way we want it? Because truth be told, we want a church as long as it is not a challenge or a roadblock to be a part of it. If it fits in the soccer schedule, Right? We only want wives and husbands that are easy to get along with. And when it gets too hard and chaotic or self-threatening, if we actually have to, and I borrowed this term from somebody, get off our donkey. I'll let you be creative. Well, the the fan don't say it anymore. Or if it will cost us our donkey in some way, we're going to get our donkeys out of there. Aren't we? We're in an era of joining and leaving churches and dipping out of ministries, relationships. You know what I hear more than anything else? All your problems. What you are not getting. And the strain it puts on you. I'm not being cared for. And I know there's some real stuff that needs to be dealt with. I mean, folks have spent considerable time, get this, figuring out and scheming how and when to slide out into the night instead of staying in the darkness. How do I know? I do it too. I lick my wounds about being a pastor of this church. Man, this thing hard, man. I don't need to be hit. folk, blah 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 blah. There's a roadblock. I'm out. I'm out. Every day, I mean, every other day, I think about what job could I get beside this one. Seriously. You can ask elders. Ask my wife. It's hard. I'm like, it'd be nice to get a job where they're like, brown, over there, get the boxes, load them up. Yes. <laughs> you know, when you're in, you in ministry and you're in real relationships, it's not Fred Flintstone. It ain't yabba-dabba-doo when you punch the clock. Some of y'all are too old for that. Too young, rather, for that. Remember Fred Flintstone? He punches the clock. Boom. My day's over. Yabba-dabba-doo. Believers don't have a yabba-dabba-doo in their lives. You can't punch a clock and be out. You know, I never hear, you know, we don't think we should be at this church anymore because our ability to love and serve and risk for others has come to an end. I hear, we don't fit because we're not getting what we want. Not, we don't fit because our ability to care for others has ended. Nehemiah's whole vision and mission was about caring for the people who are in trouble. He was a cupbearer in the king's court a thousand miles away. He had everything he wanted right there. Why would he build this house in a place where he's going to have nothing but opposition and a whole lot less friends? His mission would have been over. He, was, he said, King, I'm giving you a time that I'm going to be there. It wasn't, King, when my friends run out, when I'm not getting what I want, when things get hard, I'm leaving. No, I'm giving you a set time where I'm going to go in and do work. This is a hard one. And I'm not talking, I'm not trying to dog anybody, because I'm with Y'all. I want to stay on my high horse everywhere I go. I don't want to get down. You know, in men's class, uh, it's been great. It's been scary, too. We talked about the way we avoid chaos with our wives and friends and children. We don't want to ask, how, again, how are you doing or go into dark places that, that are too relationally or conversationally too difficult or risk our control and comfort. We are scary as all get out. Going where God is drawing you in this world for redemption will mean like Nehemiah, going into the destruction and distress of people's lives and real. getting off our high horses. We Because you know what? The way you come into a church or, or come into a community or coming to a relationship, you know what that means? You will not be able to stay riding the way you came in. It will not stay easy. You will have to get up off your horse and find a different way of getting into relationship. You have to have you actually have to be creative and assess, Lord, how are we gonna do this? When we lose our friends, when people move away, when neighborhoods change. When job situations change, when, when the government that, that, that rules us gets crazy, when, when health care gets hard to understand, I mean, when websites break down, right? When, when all kind of things go on, it's not, it, it, that is not the time to bow out. You're going to have to change. So let me tell you what it's going to mean. Ready? A loss of control. This is what it means to care for other people. This is what it means to be on mission for God. This is what it means to be a Christian that's maturing. Okay, I'm not going to lie to you, all right? It's going to feel like a loss of control, feeling lonely and forsaken, friendless, alone, risking being wrong with your friend or spouse or kid, putting yourself at risk of not getting what you want, of not feeling comfortable, of not being with and who you want to be with, of having an awkward community group and not having the perfect matched-up friends, of, getting a secure, of not getting and securing your wishes, but being about someone else. Woo! Imagine that. Sometimes I'm accidentally loving somebody else. Because when we're in control of it, man, it's about loving yourself, ain't it? It's about loving someone else in a way that serves you. It's about doing what God wants in a way that's going to benefit you personally. I mean, you read most Christian books, they'll tell you how to serve and love the city, but it always is in some way, you know... If you give, ah, you're going to get this, right? If you invest, you're going to get this return. No. What if you invest and you don't get a return? What if God gets the return? You know, we taught in this country, giving away so the government don't get all your money, right? Make sure you take your money out in the right stocks and bonds, and make sure you don't have to pay that thirty or forty percent tax and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes in our world with God, when you give, when you invest, he takes 100% tax. He gets all the glory for all that you give and invest. And the return is his. And in that way, it's good for you. I don't like to hear that. I really didn't want to say that then I'm responsible. Now, I said it. Pastor Brown, remember what you said? I was like, don't. Let's play the tape. They're not recording this one. I mean, we are called and equipped. I understand this. I don't want to throw it up. We are equipped individually together with each other. Like the king gave Nehemiah everything he needed. We are all gifted, not alone, but together. We are all gifted with what is necessary, with relationships, with help, with resource, with networks and support to take on what God has called us to be about in this world and not use those things to run away. Contrary to what American capitalism teaches us, blessing of our position is not about the ability to do what you want when and how you want to do it, but having the position like Nehemiah, being in a position you are right now with all you have and don't have and stay and dig into where God has you and oftentimes more than not, it's a very dark and dangerous and uncertain kind of place. I looked at the story and I got to ask, why would anybody in their right mind love someone or someone else that causes them to enter into darkness and uncertainty in a way they're not sure is going to pan out the way they want and aren't sure whether it will mean getting what they want and feeling self-fulfilled. Imagine if your Christianity is no longer about self-fulfillment. Would you still be a believer? It's about fulfillment, but maybe not self-fulfillment. Because God's grace, why would we do it? Why, why would you do something crazy like Nehemiah? Because God's grace is there. Because God's power is in the darkness. Because God's very presence is there and meets us there. I I think it would be foolish for us to think that Nehemiah did not fear or know the risk of entering into Israel's dilemma. In fact, look at verse 2 with me again. He says, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad seeing you are sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. What did Nehemiah say next? Then I was very much afraid. 'Cause the next line could have been, "You did. Why are your face looking like that at my event? Don't pour my wine with a sad face. You the bartender, look happy in this bad boy. I given you a place, you get to pour the pour of wine. Act right. Next line could have been, "Get him out of my face. I don't want to see a sad man got to die. Go." The Bible says that he prayed, right? And then later he asked for the king's protection, and he keeps going. I mean, it's one thing to be like, look, the reason I'm sad, because, you know, my, my hometown is really suffering. Yeah, the one you pulled the support from, king, the one, you know, that, that you said we couldn't keep working, you didn't give the supplies or taxes on, that's why I'm sad. It's one thing to be like, the king says, oh, I'm so sorry you're so sad, and you leave it at that. Like, hey, I want you to know how bad I feel. No, homeboy keeps going, right? Hey, this, this is what I need. Um, can we get the wood, bricks, resources, paperwork, all the, 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 the uh, we need a police escort, everything we need to do it? I mean, he's crazy. It is safe to say that he is assessing the, the, the potential damage, right? He knows this is a scary place to be. And you know what Nehemiah discovers also there? the impossibility of it being changed and affected by him alone. With all the position he had... He was entering into something bigger than himself, right? Something clearly demeaning and possibly life-threatening him with people who were sure to oppose him and unsure whether God's people would even follow him. And it is there in his weakness. Hear me now. At the end of his abilities, only after he has breached the darkness, that he encounters the hand and power and assurance and light of God. Look again at verse 2. It says... And the king said to me, "'Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick?' This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, "'Let the king live forever.'" In other words, amen, you the man. But I must tell you, why why should my my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin? I want you to know all these words he's using. I did a study on it. I don't have time to tell y'all about it, but he is really laying it on thick, Right? The place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, "What are you requesting?" And I love this line, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said to the king, and then after he asked for the paperwork and supplies, right for, for the king, then then look what happens after his uh, midnight horse ride the, the next morning, appearing as one sent from the king in verse seventeen then I, this is after he walks around at night, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Israel lies in ruins with his gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. You know what I noticed? Nehemiah, Found his prayer life in the departure in the darkness his connection with God and with God's wisdom power and courage to say yes to doing God's will albeit hard you know why Pastor Brown do we not see the power of God why are our prayers so cold why do my job and situation in life and friendship seem so shallow and empty? Why is marriage seem to be round and around? Because the grace of God is known in the darkness of our days in a way and in certain situations that is not known when we are in control and safe and risk-free and untroubled and unafraid and sure of everything and control the pace or plan already for everything And selfish. It is when we come to the end of ourselves and reach out to someone else for help or to reach out to help someone else that we are not sure will put us in time and talent and control jeopardy. I can't stand reaching out to people sometimes. And you're like, oh, no, is this going to be 30 minutes or is it going to be three hours? When we make a decision, remember that Nehemiah was going to rebuild his house, to stay there in Jerusalem, to live in the darkness and stand there for the glory of God, for someone and something outside of ourselves in the long haul and overhaul of life, that's when the lights come on. You know what it means when they say this game will be shown in prime time? It means an evening television shot, slot, like tomorrow, the Panthers in prime time. Monday night football. Right? When it's night, when it's dark, and people are typically done doing their running back and forth, when their schedules and stores are closed up and self feeding is over, and attention can be focused on something spectacular or amazing, I mean, there is nothing like a game in prime time, right? I want you to know that we don't have to go any further than this story of Nehemiah, in this world, in your life, in your relationships, to see that God's prime time for showing his power is when we team with others, with each other, for others and each other to battle the chaos chaos and darkness of hard and cold and dark marriages, lonely, easily overlooked singleness, of a world given over to greed and abuse of hard-to-get-to children, tough jobs, injustice and confusion in the city and society, civil and human rights, misconceptions about church. It is in those dark places among many, it is God's prime time. Where he shows up like he may not when we are selfish and wound licking and self-protective and seeking to gain something for ourselves. own the chaos and sin and darkness of what shackles the world. That's where God is. That's when a light comes on. That's where the Bible, faith, your life, the gospel, all those Christian buzzwords only make sense when we enter in in serving God and and loving our neighbors and, and going to uncertain places for the love of somebody else. That is when the gospel makes sense. The gospel is stupid. We should drop it if it's just about self-fulfillment. The Bible and God and Jesus and all that kind of stuff, we should just leave it alone, just be a pagan. You want to be good and have security and friendships and love, and you you want everything to go your way and be perfect? Christianity is not for you. Paganism is much better. Sometimes I dream about it. Man, being a pagan would be so much easier to get what I want. Just stop believing in God. The gospel makes sense outside of the borderlands, outside of the metaphorical ghetto, into places and people who have been laid waste by sin beyond the darkness, right? Look at verse 11 and 12. We're going to wrap up here. So I went to Jerusalem was there three days. Then I rose in the night and I had a few men with me and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one that I rode with. Oh, I went too far. I was only supposed to do 12. Yeah, that's cool. You know what is interesting here, again? As one entering into the destruction to the despair of his brothers and sisters' lives, Nehemiah's very heart was transformed by God. God stole his heart in the night for the task at hand. You know what happens when we enter in, when we go there for others for the glory of God? Often in some unseen place and way, God steals our affections. And we do crazy things for God. We care. We give our schedules away. We sacrifice we pray for others somewhere in that faith step. In and that, in that entering it is where God steals us and lays his hand upon our hearts. And we don't even see it coming. I must ask you where are you? Where are we in lives and times and shared hours and resources and hopes and conversations and risks? Are we standing and moving and working for the sake of others? Are we where God would have us and are we where God is at work? This last speech by Nehemiah to the people to rise up and build and join hands. Sound familiar to me. As I was reading, he says, hey, I'm here. Look, everybody get together. Let's rise up and build this place. It sounded incredibly familiar to me. And I remember where I heard it before. In Isaiah 61, it reads this way. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captains, captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in the day of vengeance of our Lord, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Get this. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastation. They shall repair the ruined cities and devastations of men. Many generations. This was a speech Jesus used to introduce himself to the world. You know what? Though we are called to have to be more like Nehemiah, we are actually the exiles in the story. We stand in the devastation and disconnected. We are the ones who cannot muster our strength to rebuild and repair our world as a community of love. In our dark brokenness, Jesus must be our Nehemiah. And he calls us into be with each other in our mess. He says, rise up, put your hands together. Let's let's get going by being first as the Lord who successfully and fully, without excuse, faithful to God when we didn't deserve it. He didn't have to leave his royal place and come into this dark world and our dark, ruined by us and others' places and redeem us and save us. And he, as the Lord alone, can wake us up and lead us and steal our hearts and, and rally us to do what God would have us to do as his people on this earth. Without God's Nehemiah Jesus, we cannot and will not have the heart, the eyes, or the stomach to do what God wants us to do with and for our world. We must get punch drunk on the gospel by believing and looking to this fact Jesus has come into your and our darkness to lead us, to gather us, and join others to a journey with him towards reparation, repair, renewal, redemption. And light. I like how Christ alone, him, puts it. Closing with this. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, And he stands in victory. Sin's curse has lost his grips on me. For I am his and he is mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. Here is where we get power and strength to enter the darkness. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ in the darkness. Going towards the light, we will stand and walk Into the darkness towards the light.